Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to episode 121 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings and 10 years ago I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary British musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. Now, on this episode of the podcast, we hear from another absolute legend in Weller circles, photographer Lawrence Watson. Now, if you followed the music of Paul Weller as a solo artist over the past 30 years, then the odds are pretty high you'll have also experienced and enjoyed the photography of Lawrence Watson. Their working relationship started in 1988 with a chance opportunity to photograph the Style Council, which led to an incredible friendship and working relationship of over 25 years. So much of that iconic imagery of Paul's solo career comes via Lawrence. Live shots inside the debut album, that unmistakable cover for Wildwood, Livewood, modern classics, as is now, and so much more as well. I'm not even listing all the singles, for goodness sake. He's even directed videos for Paul Weller too. And in fact, 800 images were selected for their book Into Tomorrow in 2015, which gives you an idea of how much access Lawrence has had to Paul Weller and his bands on stage, on the road, in the studio over the years. It's a real honour, a real, real honour to have this fella on the podcast Let's get into it. Lawrence Watson, thank you so much for joining me. My pleasure. My oh my goodness me. So many fans are looking forward to this one, so no pressure. How good. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, I've been running away from it. I like being behind the camera. <laughs> <laughs> well, because you've been there for such a long time, for such a key part of Paul Weller's, certainly the solo years, but also a bit of style council as well. But so many of these iconic images that we love of Paul came from you, man. That was very sweet of you. I was lucky. I was lucky to be there at the time <laughs> with a camera. 
Well, it wasn't just luck. It was it was obviously talent, and we'll dig into this. But let's kick off with the story, because am I right in thinking you were a fan of the jam? Yeah, I did, yeah. And I was a youngster. I was bunking into the rainbow with all my mates at secondary school on Cali Road, yeah. I think, yeah, it was several times we bunked in. I think John was good. I think he kicked the doors in one year in the middle of the rainbow. The doors were pushed in, and John had done that. And I think we had one ticket between about 15 of us that we passed around the security man's shoulder, and we all got in. I think another year he was giving out tickets at the stage door. So John was very good about sorting the youngsters out. I think we would have been 13 or 14, 14 probably at the time. Brilliant. And what was it about the band that connected with you? What was it that you loved about them? Well, lots of those bands there. The jam probably spoke to us a lot. It was just that punk ethos, I think. It was great. It was, it was somebody kicking against the statues. <laughs> Sorry, I got my dog in the background there. Um, no, it was just that whole punk ethos that you could go out and do and be whatever you wanted to be in life, sort of thing. Kick over the statues. I can nick that Redskins line. Yeah, no, I think I think we all looked up to Scruffy Herberts from Council Estates. We sort of all aspired to that. You can do and be a musician. You could be this, you could be that and stuff. And yeah, lo and behold, I became a photographer. So the love of photography came at an early age as well then, right? Yeah, no, I wanted to be a documentary photographer. Of course, that, that whole going back to the punk thing, I wanted to be a documentary photographer and it was that time it was all the anti-Nazi league marches, the H-block marches up near um, Marble Arch. Yeah, all the photographers I loved early on were all the Magnum photographers, all Cartier Bresson and Elliot. Well, there's loads of Magnum photographers, great, great Magnum photographers who sort of, yeah, sort of seemed to want to change the world through their photography. So as a naive youngster, I thought I can take pictures that will change the world and show everybody how bad it is. And But then, yeah, the music sort of intertwined in it as well. So I still do a little bit of documentary, but yeah, it's been great to do musicians all my life sort of thing. And my next love was music. And I wasn't a very good musician, so the next best thing was, was taking pictures of them. <laughs> yeah. And what was it? What was the love of the the camera? Where did the first camera come from? It was a friend who worked in a dark room, Joe's basement. It was an art teacher. There was always that inspiring teacher at school that, that teaches you, and he let everybody cheat at O level art. Everybody could. They used to break in. I can't remember the hours. It was like a three hour paper and a six hour paper. You could spend six hours on a three hour paper, and he'd let us use take pictures, stick them on the overhead projector. I think he's probably no longer teaching. So. I'm I'm sure he won't get around <laughs> a, a long time ago. But everybody left with O-level art in our school. And there was a friend there um, who had a dark room. He's had a little dark room. And we went around to some scrapyards in West London, printed them up and put them on an overhead projector. And so began my love of photography. And my dad one, wasn't one for going back to school and university and stuff who was going out and get a job so luckily I found a job down in Old Street in a darkroom. Nice. Was this LWT was that? It was just before LWT yeah I did about a year in Scrutton Street in a darkroom called Brian Marshall Photography and then got offered the um, the job at London Weekend yeah in their darkroom little lab in Scrutton Street with all the litho printers down there and there was a London Weekend that started doing live stuff eventually they, the enemy started to print some of my live pictures my stepbrother Dave Durrell was writing a bit for them and um, I tag along try and take some pictures most of the first four or five I all refused. I was too far away and they were out of focus. So eventually it was about a sudden death cult, I think, the first band. Yeah, it was a life picture of sudden death cult underneath Hammersmith, whatever the Hammersmith roundabout. It was a Greyhound. I think it was Greyhound. I forget, I forget all the venues now. And you're a teenager? Yeah, no, I was 16. Yeah, yeah, 16 then. Yeah, 16. 16. <laughs> Brilliant. This is yeah. incredible. I mean, that music connection is is throughout the whole career. So we'll talk about these bands and the, the people that you work with. I mean, this commission where you get to go to New York, how old were you at that point? How, how soon did that come? About 
1920 or something, yeah. It was an opportune moment. Luckily, the schools I had gone to, William York, it was very sort of mixed West Indian, sort of a good mixture. So I'd grown up with lots of reggae around me and stuff and going to blues and sound systems. I'd love that. And I saw that hip hop thing was just another extension of the toasting and things like that. And I thought, no, this is great. And all the, the old school, the Antons were very sort of, no, 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 this isn't, yeah, this isn't music sort of thing. And I'd be there in the room, so I'll put my hand up. I'll go to New York and take pictures. <laughs> I'll take pictures of public enemy, please. It's suddenly I've got a break. I guess also it's like, to me, it seems like that music, that genre, that new genre of music at that time is almost like an extension of punk in a way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, definitely the public enemies of this world. And yeah, some of that. You probably... And I run DMC and uh... DMC was saying things as well. Yeah. LL Cool Joe was probably more, more about the fun thing and stuff. He had the Beastie Boys and all the other ones that came along after Schoolie D and all the other bits and pieces. It was that thing of, yeah, the, the punk ethos of knowing a couple of chords and be able to go and perform on stage. But the hip hop thing was, I've got some turntable, the old line two turntables and a mic. And, um, I can't afford the instruments, but I'll make music by, by hook or crook. I'll find a way. And they did. Yeah. All mm-hmm. the Paul Herc and all those, yeah, all, all those sound systems in the Bronx, which were mostly related to Jamaican sort of sound system ethos things as well. So that's where the Jamaican thing, I think, comes through in hip-hop. Oh, yeah. And also that connection with the youth, I guess, was similar in a way, whereby people at that time then kind of had their own music. It was something that they were inventing, they were creating. No, exactly. That's exactly how teenagers always want their own thing, don't they? We want something that our parents don't listen to, which is now all changed around probably. Their parents all share their record collections with their kids now, don't they? I think that, yeah. <laughs> oh, no, trust me, I wish I didn't have to listen to Pokemon, the musicals, or the music soundtrack. Trust me, honestly. <laughs> Jeez, bloody hell. But I read somewhere as well that you wanted to be a bass player at one point. There was, I did, yeah. There was a, there was a lovely club in because we grew up in the, the West End near Russell Square and around near there. And there was a great, there was loads of great youth clubs back then. There was one called the Basement. It's the one they use in the in the in the band scene, the club scene in Quadrophenia. It is a little basement in in Shelton Street in Covent Garden. They used to have a dark room there as well and music lessons. And I did the UK subs. That was Charlie Harp. I forgot the bass player's rudely forgotten his name, but he gave like lessons on the bass down there. I think I did about six weeks to try and learn Walk on the Wild Side or the Velvets. And it was like, is there anything else to you? <laughs> I had no sense of rhythm whatsoever. And uh, the next thing, and, the, and again, there was a dark room there as well that we got the chance to use. So the photography was sort of luckily in the background all the time. <laughs> uh, but, but it, was, it was great. It was great fun there though, anyway. I mentioned to the fans of Weller and the podcast that you were coming on and so many people sent through questions. So I'm going to weave these through our conversations. And the first one picks up with Sean Wilson. How did you first link up with Weller? And Ricky says, please ask if Lawrence was a Weller fan before he worked with Paul. So the first link where you work with Paul, I mean, it's the love of the jam that led to working with Paul. Would that be yeah. right? Yeah, no, it was. Yeah, but it, it was fortuitous because what happened where I was in the darkroom, you mentioned London Weekend Television and there was a young lady up there, lovely Shane Chapman, who's um, Mick Talbot's partner. And she was in the press office up there and she knew she came down to me in the darkroom lunchtime's Poe going round to the, the jam and the various, the clash and that. And she knew that was a big fan. And she said, oh, no, Paul's doing a recording. And um, I think it was the one for the, uh, which became the Star Council sleeve. And he said, I'll, I'll ask if you can go along with your camera. And I said, the one camera, one lens at the time. And I went along to the, um, the thing he was doing three stages, I think. Yeah, two numbers on each of the stages um, from Confessions of a Pop Group. And I went along and shot, yeah, like the London Weekend were good, gave me some film to shoot. And I came back and then processed all that film. And um, lo and behold, Paul then put that on the cover of Confessions of a Pop Group. And <laughs> I thought he might like one of my prints and maybe he'll use one for a press picture. I hope I just hope he likes them. 
And then suddenly I walked home on cloud nine that suddenly he's, he's sending the designer, Simon Half, on this box of prints saying, this is the cover, this is the back. And it was like, wow, this is meant to happen. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is incredible, isn't it? Because obviously the previous album is just an orange cover. So there's no photography. And I, and I read somewhere that Paul, at one point, the Confessions album was going to be a different coloured cover. But at some point, I think I maybe probably will push back on that or whatever. But suddenly yeah. your photo is the front cover of Confessions of Apocrypse. There was a session done, I said. I think John Stoddart, I, I apologise to this day to him. I think it, there was a session had been done for that cover as well. I, I, not, I never saw them. So, yeah, and I felt really bad because I know as a photographer, I would have felt bad that I'd done a session for an album and some, some little Herbert Upstart comes along with it. <laughs> and suddenly usurps me. But Yeah, just because he's been pogoing in the dark room, so the yeah. jam gets the gig. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and what did you make of the music? Because so, so that session would have been them recording like the video promo exactly, yeah. that came out that was on Aftermath of the Day with, and Dee behind the piano because she was pregnant at the time. And that, right, that one. Yeah, she, yeah, she's pregnant with Natty and she's probably about she's about eight or nine, nine months pregnant hence yeah the, the hiding behind the piano so there are pictures where she is revealed behind the piano but we'll pick that one with Dee sat behind the piano and were you a fan of the Style Council was that a, I mean you mentioned the jam was that your yeah, band no, I enjoyed the Style Council yeah I got that solely things I loved all that all, all the Curtis and all those things and stuff yeah, he's just uh, that's the great thing about Paul he'll throw so many different fields he'll take his, his inspiration from many many different sources which I don't think a lot of people give him credit for a lot of the time I know we all love the jam we wanted it to stay that way but life doesn't stay like that and to be in a band I think you've got to be on that other side to know that you've got to go out on that stage and perform those songs every night again and again and again and sometimes you like to play, like to play some new songs <laughs> yeah I think Paul has said that I didn't want to turn it to status quo not as a derogatory I think you like status quo and you enjoy their gigs but that thing that you're just doing the same thing which can become a trap to musicians that yeah you just do a formula and the thing is with this session this is this is all analogue so this is pre-digital this is all film, yeah. photos yeah. on film the contact yeah. sheet the dark room those that stuff, right? Yeah, the good old days. <laughs> <laughs> but you wouldn't still, know what you were going to get. You didn't know what you had, did you? Yeah, this, you get you get lucky things that sometimes the light works and stuff. But normally you can see sort of roughly what you're shooting for. Then, of course, in that 125th of a second, you don't know if you caught the magic totally and stuff. But you know if the lighting looks good or you, you're capturing a moment that looks like a good moment. If the gods are with you, the photography gods, then suddenly you do get something magical as well. You have an eye. I'm always looking at light and looking at locations, looking at backgrounds. I'm always framing things in my head anyway I think that's a curse of photographer you're looking at the minutiae but that's the thing I think what good photographers do they see things in the detail we have to then talk obviously the style council comes to an end fairly soon after um, the modernism album gets rejected but your connection with Paul must remain during that time and what you made yeah, yeah no we're for- fortunate to carry on yeah Paul was pleased with that and then there was the the, yeah, the limbo period Polydor had, that contract had finished or Polydor brought it to an end and luckily Andy McDonald turned up and, and Godis forming the picture done a little bit before the solo first one with Nick Knight's pitch so I had the internal ones on that then the next one Wildwood where he goes down to Oxford to the Manor Studios and Paul said he'll come down come down and stay and, and just document the recording and that's yeah where obviously all, all the pictures for Wildwood comes from well let's talk about some of these iconic images so the first solo album so I've got them here this, it makes it easier for me to talk about so this first solo album here Paul Weller yeah it's Nick's picture on the cover Nick, yeah. Nick's picture on the front but it's your images on the inside the booklet on the inside right yeah there's lots of my ones yeah there's some more Nick's one I think he's taken he's done video grabs as well I think but um, yeah some of Nick's and some of mine done in the old yeah the old Gnomish studios the one down near down the back of Shepherd's Bush where Solid Bond used to have an office and let's talk about Paul as a subject alright yeah. so uh, uh, for a photographer those images where 
I mean, he always looks so bloody cool, right? So, you know, in terms of like his look, his, what he's wearing, his hair, everything looks so cool. But you're also capturing stuff in a live arena as well, because you're, you know, at some of the gigs and, and stuff. So how is that different in your world as a photographer taking him in a studio? Is he, is he relaxed? Does he feel anxious about being photographed? Does he like it? Yeah, I don't think he likes photographic studios. I think he's sort of come around to that now in later life because you can control the lighting in that. So that's the thing with the documentary film. You're not always getting the, the best lighting set up. But normally if you wait long enough, the people will fall into that light but um, there's not much different the live and and the recording studio is the same approach it's just biding your time and being being a bit anonymous in in the space and stuff and waiting for those moments to happen sometimes they don't sometimes I've often compared it to that going fishing (laughs) (laughs) sitting by a riverbank waiting for something to happen that looks interesting sort of veered round to that way because I saw Paul wasn't that comfortable in photographic studio he's a musician not not, not a model and um, although I know he makes every effort to make sure he looks he looks great and stuff he's his love of clothes and things he's always put that attention detail in your clothes and that's what we have as working class kids we only have our clobber most of the time anyway and stuff is what we're judged on so we always make that effort to make sure we look sharper than the next man (laughs) (laughs) with him it feels to me like he's always been it's not just been about the music from day one it's been every iteration the jam star council has been very visual as well yeah no he appreciates the image yeah yeah he appreciates art and no he gets all that he gets the whole thing it is it is all everything and stuff life is all that encompassing all those things from the imagery yeah to the music and i think the good artists pay attention to that and they sit and they do that when they do their sleeves and things like that saying this is a representation of me and people judge things on that don't they what they pick up is they, they can make their mind up by looking at a record sleeve not even listening to the music it's I don't like that picture you forget how fundamental the images as well well the front cover of an album particularly the vinyl you know maybe less so in an mp3 world where it's a tiny little thing on your phone but which must be so bloody frustrating for album designers i'm sure right and photographers and whatever but uh, this cover here of wildwood like such an iconic image of weller isn't it yeah um tell me about that how did that come about in terms of taking that shot was that just one of those lucky images one of those moments yeah no it was that that's the that's the doorway of the studios um and that's just that's the door frame that paul silhouetted in and he was just doing some i think he was just putting some bass back on back on a track and stuff so he was di'd into the main deck and he was just sitting there and luckily it was a, a gorgeous sunny day so outside of the darkness of that that door frame there's a sort of there's an english summer day outside the back there with all that green going on and i just rattled a roll yeah the shot in the two and a quarter which is the old sort of hasselblad you just get 12 frames on it and i just saw this lovely silhouette just framed against the, the, the afternoon sunshine. So simplicity sometimes often the way to go. Was that another one where this was analog, this would have been revealed in the dark room? You must have been like, oh my God, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah, no, it worked really well. The gods were with me that day. <laughs> <laughs> and in terms of like the book that we get and the poster and everything, I love all this stuff we well. I mean, I'm unpacking it here as we're talking, but all the shots of that time, it seems like that making of that album. I mean, Paul's back in the groove. People are loving his music again. It seems like from the shots that you've taken that there was a kind of real, like almost like style council, family affair type thing where people are, because it's a residential studio, everybody's there, the kids are there, the families are there. It's a yeah. really nice time, right? Yeah, no, it's a lovely time. Yeah, no, it was, it was, it was one of those magical things where all, yeah, everybody's mojo was, was there. And it was, people would roll in and out. Mick Talbot come down, do some bits, his piano bits. Then you have Marco from the Young Disciples, obviously Steve White. And then Paul would bring his kids down, Natty and stuff. I'd bring my lad down. A couple of kids who used to come up and play with everybody up from one of the canal boats down the bottom, that picture inside with the kids on the wall and stuff and the football and stuff. And we would do, we'd just have to <laughs> tea on the lawn, kicking the ball around and stuff. And it was just like documenting those perfect, like perfect summer days in between recording a brilliant album <laughs> <laughs> and did you feel that it was a brilliant album i mean as a lover of music did you feel yeah. like this is something special yeah no i decided to hear the songs yeah 
who's on the money again. As a Weller fan, um, and I got into Paul from the solo years, so, so my introduction to Paul Weller was, oh, yeah, and then the discovery of this immense back catalogue of the Jammer Style Council. But then, obviously, I'm on the journey then for this these solo years. And so much of that stuff was captured with your imagery to the point that when it came out, I think it was been 95, 96, days lose their names and time slips away. Lawrence Watson, Paolo Hewitt, there was this kind of mini yeah. book. Do you remember this? Yeah, it yeah. came with a free CD as well, which you had to send off for, I think, if I remember <laughs> <laughs> a stands address envelope it's brilliant but all these images are your images in here which are absolutely stunning but there's also some wonderful bits which I want to ask you about where some of the characters that come through as well so there was a line where it said about going on tour with the Weller Band right it's not setting up the tours that's the problem it's the piss ups when you go on them and this is about Kenny and John it did go quite hand in hand there was yeah a lot of that yeah but that was it it was fun you're making music you're in a rock and roll band you have fun while you're doing it <laughs> it was a lot of fun it was a lot of late nights yeah I did send a shudder down the back of my neck nowadays looking back <laughs> <laughs> yeah bless your liver and then Kenny Wheeler there's a lovely photo I'm trying to find it of, 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 of Big Ken I mean it seems to me that I mean, he's so loved with the kind of well crew but yeah here is so the time it says Kenny has been with us for nearly 16 years and he's the one who cops the most flack a tour manager's role is the toughest in my opinion they get it from all sides band and crew and at times from the promoter manager and punters what did Kenny bring to the party I think he shepherded him <laughs> he was the shepherd <laughs> and I think they needed a lot of shepherding at some points. <laughs> I think I found I saw that little Star Council get together the other week and I saw them down down in Soho and it was funny and they and Mick was talking about one of his stories that I'm sure he's probably told anyway, it's probably in the documentaries and stuff, where you had Mr. Tour bus and he's out on the North Circle, wherever it was, on the motorway and stuff, and he said it's the one time that I wanted somebody to recognise who I was. <laughs> <laughs> Don't you know who I am? I'm stuck. I need a lift. <laughs> I'm sure there were plenty of incidences like that. There's been a few times where you and Paul have sat down together and produced books like that there's been some I mean, some yeah. beautiful kind of productions when does it feel right to have that kind of pause and that reflection moment because Paul's famously somebody always wanted to look forward yeah exactly we don't yeah we didn't go back to the archive and I think that's a good thing as well with books like that I think there's quite a few books that come out and they're, and they're based on two or three photo sessions and stuff and at least these lovely it's Genesis the lovely publishers who put these books out they do spend time over them we spend time going through the contact sheets and the imagery and stuff and I think then you do get something that's, that's a body of work over a period of time so I think it's it's allowing that to build up allowing mm-hmm. enough different photo sessions different times and periods and then the fans get they get something valuable then the, so the Into Tomorrow one was the first one that we mentioned which was yeah. 2015 so that would have been what 22 years of Weller as a solo artist and Paul's kind of t- you know, retracing his steps through that journey with you there's a line actually let me read this so he says these are photos of how it is life on the road life on stage the reality of it when he's with us Lawrence becomes part of the band we're all in the same mission so you're literally part of the crew you feel like a band member does it take you back to the bass player I do I get to the bass I get to be that bass player for a moment (laughs) they let me pick it up now put that down Lawrence put that bass down (laughs) you're not allowed you're not allowed to touch the instruments no you do yeah no you do become part that's that's a great honour and a privilege that I was sort of yeah just accepted as as part of the the road crew and stuff and and that's great because that makes my life so much easier as a photographer because it is quite it does become a big sort of family shebang sort of thing that you're on your you're out in with everybody and it is yeah going out there and proving yourself every night on the stage the crowd that turns up Paul's total ethos that he has to give a great show at 110% every night he goes on and I got to document those times and they're great that's why it's so great to document Paul because he's so passionate about his music 
music and everybody, every musician who steps on the stage with them has got to have that passion as well. Nothing worse that you won't have anybody on that stage who isn't giving 110% as well. I mean, it seems to me that's quite a rare thing to have that longevity between artist and photographer. Would that be fair in terms of that much of a career? Yeah, no, it was. I was very fortunate. Yeah. Luckily, I think Paul, Paul obviously liked what I, the pictures I was taking. Being, yeah, just accepting the fray. I wasn't going out there and selling them to other newspapers. I didn't, I didn't really syndicate my pictures to other places. So those pictures stayed stayed in his sort of archive and protected the imagery and stuff. And then making sure they're of a standard as well. And that's the thing. I think you got to, yeah, you control that, that stuff going out. And you do mm-hmm. keep a, a high standard. And then the fans get those things like we're talking about the Wildwood thing, the package, the booklet, the posters and stuff. And they get something that's not seen before. I mean, it's not- not just a still image we should talk music videos as well and uh, 1993 so the changing man you're part of the shoe right part of the shoe i shot the cutaway imagery and stuff yeah pedro romani a friend of mine as well he shot it they wanted to get a feel like i do a thing called cross-processing which you can't so much do with the film so much is this film transparency film that you put through a color negative bath and it gives you those really vibrant colors you see it like modern classics and yeah and stanley road and the colors are very vivid and he wanted to recreate that on a moving imagery. So they did actually do a pass of it. They took all the colour negative shot they shot and then repassed it through into transparency to try and give it a feel. I was just doing some of the cutaways just on the little Bolex camera. I was doing some of the cutaways on the day and doing stills on the day as well. So that was the B unit. <laughs> well, Paul makes more clothes changes in that than like a Milan catwalk, I think. The amount of outfits. But there are others. So there's brushed. Yeah, brushed is mine. Yeah, yeah. I forgot, but yeah, I've forgotten half the videos I made. Yeah. That that was me playing around with inks and bits and pieces and trying to do my little surreal. I always like tinkering with things and exposing in camera and messing around with imagery. Brushed was one, yeah. There's a couple of document- documentaries, one in, I can't remember the one we did in Holland. We did interviews for that and stuff. But yeah, there's a few videos over the years. I've lost track of them now. Well, on my list, I've got Wishing on a Star, which would have been Studio 150 oh. times. So that would have been the yeah, Amsterdam that was, stuff. Yeah, that was the roundhouse, yeah. From the floorboards up with Stuart. So is Stuart your son? Stuart's my brother. Stuart edits and produces, yeah. So Stuart was producing it. Yeah. Oh, nice. So that's so nice. So that was from the floorboards up and here's the good news I think you worked on together. Yeah, no, I think you met Stuart over the years through knowing him as my brother and coming along and helping sometimes on shoots and stuff, yeah. But he, I think he knew Stuart was involved in the movement, yeah, producing and stuff. So yeah, Stuart used to work at a few production companies and produce for other people and also edited. Just an easy family affair thing to, to get him involved as well. Nice. Okay, well, look, I'm going to ask you some more of these questions from the fans as well. So Jem Milner says, has he ever had to tell Paul to go home and get changed? And, smart, <laughs> and smarten up a bit. No, I don't think that's happened. No, no that hasn't happened. <laughs> I wonder if anybody has ever had to tell him that. No, no. Oh, Paul, I'm not sure about this outfit. No. <laughs> he, he might look back on some pictures that I've taken maybe the day after the hangover and the tour things and stuff. But uh, I don't think that's, yeah, Paul wouldn't leave the room without having that last look in the mirror. I was saying like somebody the other day, it's like, how does Paul Weller take the bins out? I mean, is he, he's not out there in his flip-flops and his joggers, you know. Is that... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> never see it, do we? We never see it. But also the hair is always a big thing. Like, you know, so I mean, so many changes from the, even just the style council with the fringe and the peroxide yeah. blonde. People get obsessed with the Weller haircut. Have you got a favourite from all your photographs? Is Probably sure. The Wildwood ones and stuff, but yeah, they come and go with those and stuff. There's some look stronger than others. Yeah. I just look them as a general thing. I don't, I don't hone in on the hair too much and stuff. Yeah. I tell you what, uh, the 22 Dreams hair and the hat and all that. Long, was- yeah. 
Yeah, the hair's a bit long. Yeah, that's probably one of the times that yeah, that, I think the hair could have been trimmed a bit on the other sides. But that's it. That's, that's the style that you want it to go through. And we all try different things. I'm sure I've got plenty of hair pictures in my. Yeah, I used to wear. <laughs> I, I, I had a, in my in my sort of housey house period with the Alice band and the long hair. There's periods that I look back and mm, maybe that could have been a bit. Yeah, a trim could have been. But we try things. We go through periods. We've all been there. I had a per- I had a perm at one stage, a ginger perm. Say, we've, all, we've all tried something. <laughs> Thankfully, you weren't there taking photos. They don't exist. <laughs> Poor old Paul. That's the thing, isn't it? There's always the photographer. Documented, exactly. Exactly. Uh, Sean Wilson, question for Lawrence. He said, when taking Paul's photograph, how did you go about making Paul feel relaxed for the shot in hand? And I guess there's that difference between like early days when he doesn't know you so well versus you know 20 years later where you're like really good mates and it becomes a lot more natural a lot easier i suspect i think they just came through time as you were saying just that familiarity and stuff and then knowing what kind of pictures i took that comfortableness to know that yeah no i don't like these pictures Lawrence is taking so i will let him sit at my feet by the amplifier and stuff while i'm recording in this booth and stuff so i know he's trying to get great pictures so i think that's yeah and that just yeah came over time it also seems like he's got a really good eye for this stuff as well right he has an opinion yeah yeah, no, we, we sit down with the imagery and, yeah, and then we go through and print and I try and print a good selection of them and then sometimes Paul revisit contact and say, no, maybe try that one as well and stuff. Yeah, no, there's a strong, strong part to play in it. He knows he's going he's gonna to have to live with those images for the rest of his life. As you said, they'll be there. <laughs> they'll be there. That record sleeve will be there. Have there been times when he's been like really prescriptive on a brief? If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrowcom slash ACAST. That's burrowcom slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Where that brief's been really tight and it's really, like a really clear direction of this is the type of thing I want for an album cover or an inlay or, or a magazine photo or anything like that. Some of those things, those conversations sometimes would happen with Simon more than, more than me and stuff. That they maybe have some graphic ideas and stuff like from the floorboards up was those, the, the, the Perspex lettering and stuff that we, we hung and it could have been just done. He could have just photographed the lettering and comped it together, but we tried to do it in situ, hanging out. I think how you reveal in the shot where I go wide on it, you see the poles and the fishing wire and stuff to make it hang. And well, that was always me trying to do everything in camera. 
Cameron. So Paul would have some, maybe some things, some themes and stuff. But most of the time, because my stuff is quite documentary, as it's not not photographic studio based, I didn't sort of go into too many of those. I think the later albums start to play with things with other photographers with the neon tubes and things. But yeah, you, you try certain things. Did, you didn't have to make those perspex lettering, did you? No, Simon, no, Simon got those. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> my tools don't go that far. I see, like hanging up with a fishing wire and all that. Um, Wardy eight four three on Twitter. So I was talking about that book actually. The book days lose their names and time slips away. Documents the early solo career with a different backing band to the current one, except for Steve Craddock. Picking anyone who's been there, who's in your dream Weller backing band? <laughs> They've all been great musicians, so, and I've got I've got a good relationship with them all. So I'm not going to name any of them because I'll upset one of them. But yeah, he's always surrounded himself with great musicians. Paul, were well, there other members of the Weller band who were very photogenic? I mean, Steve Craddock takes a good photo, doesn't he? Yeah, no, Steve was very photogenic. Steve Steve White was good to photograph. There's so many different bits here, Doctor. Robert at that point on the um, at the tour as well, yeah, popped in and out. He had Marco, as I said, from the Young Disciples. Matt Dayton from Mother Earth. There's been quite a few over, over the years. Got a great band at the moment. Britpop Memories on Twitter says, in my opinion, Lawrence took the single greatest Weller photo of all time, but I've always wondered where the room was and if there's any more from this shoot. Now, I, this is the one where Paul's on the bed. Do you remember this? It's a hotel room or something. Is it in this book? Yeah. There's, a be- there's the bedroom in the manor. So, you know, it's not with the pre Raphaelite picture in the background. Yeah, that's yeah, 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 yeah. So that's the manor, blue and white sort of stripes on it, and there's a painting in the back of that. Fa- the famous, what's that? I've forgotten the art. You know, the pre-Raphaelite one. There are so many that we can mention on this podcast episode. There's, there's one. One of the ones I really love is Paul Weller in front of his record collection. Yeah, that's his old place down in. Yeah, it's not Woken, is it Send? When he used to live down in Send, yeah, in front of this kind of massive rack of vinyl records. That, that was one of the rooms as well. <laughs> <laughs> really? Was that his idea, or was that your idea, or was that just one of those natural documenting things? A documenting thing. I think I think it's great, and I knew I knew the fans would love to see Paul some a glimpse in the summer Paul's record collection. Yeah, I, I think I can't remember which magazine it was. It might have been a relevant thing to the, to the article as well. I don't think it was. Rec- it might have been record collector, or somebody had gone through a specific. They were specifically, I think, going through Paul's record collection as well for the piece. So I think it tied in with the piece to have Paul surrounded by his vinyl as well. And it's got, I think I've got some of my little personal pictures. You've got pictures of Natty and Leah in the corner within the Barbie dolls and bits and pieces. And the pictures I took of Natty and Leah for, for Paul and the family and stuff as well. So it's quite funny. Oh, actually in that shot. It's in the shot around yeah. the shelf. You can see my pictures of the kids. Oh, brilliant. I mean, that's such, again, the, all these iconic images. And it's interesting because I was talking to Garabankovic on the podcast recently who you know, photographs of the Stones and Pete Arnold yeah. and, and all that, you'll know, right? And, um, yeah. and he did the Jam Modern World cover. Um, but we were talking about how some artists, the ones who seem to be really successful, like next level, massive success, always seem to be really photogenic as well. And I don't know if there's a connection in that, but they all seem to take a good, like people like Kate Bush, Tina Turner, Jackson, Madonna, all that bloody good photography subjects as well, you know? They get good photographers as well. You can control lighting and, and then the way you photograph people. But yeah, on the whole, you're probably right here. Yeah. Look at Roy Orbison though. <laughs> <laughs> okay. One of the most photogenic, but brilliant musician. But yeah, no, I think on the whole, I probably, yeah. I'd agree with you. And that's that star quality kind of floods out of the image, yeah. which I guess is what the point, right? That's probably what it, partly what it is. They don't necessarily aren't the, some of them aren't the greatest looking stuff, but they give off an air of yeah, that confidence that you yeah, that you're probably trying to that we will try and document in our pictures. There's an hippy dippy, but there's an aura. <laughs> there's an aura about them. Do you still get that same buzz? Do you still get that same buzz from picking up the camera, from taking shots, from deciding how to take yeah, you know, what the scenario will be, you know, and all that? 
Yeah, no, I still get that enthusiastic. Yeah, it's a shame the darkroom's sort of gone back a bit, but the digital's moved on. Digital's become something that you can now make look pretty much like film now. So, yeah, so I miss those times. Yeah, I've still got a darkroom. A friend's got a darkroom in Wales. I go down and printing still. So I was glad that I can still, still do a bit of black and white printing. Is that the buzz of like, not knowing... Like literally lifting this, I don't know what the solution is, but in my mind, in the dark room, you're kind of pulling the print out of the solution, hanging it up and all that yeah. like you see in the movies. Yeah. 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 You normally done your contact sheet and seen something that, yeah, but and then you're only seeing it quite small in a contact sheet. So until you're actually blown up really large, do you know if, it's, it's, if, if everything's there as well? But you've normally got a good feeling about something when you see it on the contact sheet, just over the years of, yeah, 40 odd years of looking at contact sheets and film. So you sort of know, but yeah, no, there's still a, there's still a, still a magical feeling. It's probably, yeah, not quite as strong as it was when I was 19, or, yeah, 18, 16 stuff where I did, yeah, but still something, something works out. It still gives you a great pleasure and satisfaction as a musician writing a great song. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Let me talk about, we'll come back to Weller. Let me talk about some of the other artists because the amount of musicians who are on the top of their game that you've worked with from people like, you know, Oasis to Snoop Dogg to people like Ian Brown, Nana Cherry and that, but Noel Gallagher is somebody who's obviously very close to Paul. I'm guessing you work together because of his love of Mr. Weller's music. Did the connection come from Paul on that? It did, yeah. It came to, initially. It came through. They were meant to be doing the album um, "Don't Believe the Truth" one Christmas, and Simon Halfon called up just at last minute. It was a couple of days before Christmas. And I think they had somebody booked to shoot it because it's an artwork. It's graffiti on garage doors. They didn't. I don't know what happened. I don't know if the photographer had fallen ill or something. But then suddenly Simon said, "Look, we need somebody to shoot this artwork, this, this graffiti and lettering and stuff." And I said, "Yeah, no, no, fine. That, that, that sounds good." I shot it in various ways, from fisheye to panoramic cameras to try and give them lots of different feels to. From and it was a fisheye shot that Noel really loved. The management said, Look, we we're really pleased with what you've got here. Can you do the press pictures for them as well? And then again, <laughs> a foot inside the door, and I became, yeah, became OSIS photographer for the next sort of 10 years after that. Yeah, however long it was. Yeah, then went on to Noel. Yeah, I did bits with Liam as well, but then, yeah, the parting of the brothers. And, um, yeah, did you have to pick one? Was a bit like, I mean, I think Mr. Weller's maybe in one camp run the other nowadays, but did you have to, yeah, did you have to pick a brother? Yeah, I, sort of, yeah, it sort of because Liam went to get different management anyway, and, and I did some little bits of them when they were in the studio initially. BDI, I did some bits at Rack Studios for them, just a little bit of documentary, and Noel wasn't really doing anything at that point. But then they were starting to go with different management. Yeah, and then Noel started to record, and Noel said about coming down and documenting, very similar to, to, to the Manor sort of idea and stuff, come and document making of my solo album, and, and Noel seems to took a while to do his album. So you were there back and forth, what, around like 18 months and like that, was that right? Yeah, no, it was over quite a long period of time. Little studios in Richmond and a few other ones scattered around London. There's quite a lot done in Richmond, and then fortunately he went out to, to LA to do some other bits and pieces with the producer out there some drum drum bits and pieces and got to shoot in that lovely Sunset Sounds studio the famous LA one that the Doors recorded in Prince recorded in once he'd made his money from Purple Rain recreated it to the millimetre of that studio in Minneapolis it's hysterical oh really yeah and then we got I think the engineers was great it got to take us into the echo chamber that Jim Morrison had done like the Doors album I was like we're in the echo chamber I've shot I think I've taken some pictures and they're not great pictures Noel in there but I've got to take pictures of this, this, this chamber because the engineers knew about this hidden echo chamber that we're all sort of, wow, this is where Jim Morrison <laughs> did the Doors albums. But that, that was always a buzz to me, going at the famous recording studios, knowing the history of them as well. Like Abbey Road, that, yeah, doing, doing Ace in Abbey Road and shot Paul in Abbey Road quite a few times as well. But yeah, you hopefully you 
feel you're picking up a bit of the magic, the pixie dust of a place that you're, you're documenting somewhere that they, they hold dear as well, that their favourite records were recorded in this place. So You always get that sense from Paul that above anything else, he's a he's a music fan. He loves music, right? So the yeah. fact you have that connection and when you're going somewhere, it's like, oh, so-and-so recorded at this or this was there where that famous shot was taken or whatever. Yeah, no, I did that. When did I do that? And I love my cinema as well, which is obviously a, a big influence on my photography as well. I love great cinematographers. And um, the, the Above the Clouds shot, which is shot in, we went out to do a I can't remember which magazine it was. Went out to shoot him in San Francisco, so that was great. And then I said, "I've oh, got, we've got to get Golden Gate Bridge in somehow and stuff." And I imagine and so found the capture. I described the place, and I said, "This is the place in Dirty Harry where they find the the, the body and stuff." And I've got gold. <laughs> I'm turning around and, and I'm getting excited. This is Dirty Harry. This is where Dirty Harry's where Clint Eastwood was on the hill and stuff. And so, Paul's it really like scratch his head. I don't think it was a musical reference. It was my cinema reference. But I'm in on the location where Dirty Harry was. <laughs> but yeah, no, I love those things yeah they're brilliant aren't they i love that right a couple of other questions for you here from the fans so john smith on twitter this is a good one what is lawrence's favorite picture of paul that was taken by someone else Oh, there's, there's a few good ones. I love that. Lots of Penny Smith's live shots are great, but it's that great time when Paul was Pete Townsend and all over the place and Poe going, jumping in six foot off the air. So Penny Smith's are great. So maybe because I, I think I'm fondly of seeing those sort of pictures as me being in the audience. Um, but there's lots of good. Nick's taken lovely pictures over the years. Peter Anderson, Style Council shots. Paul Weller News, this is Dave, who's in the US. He says, I'm a big fan of his images from the early days of hip hop in the 1980s. What are his memories of those sessions with the likes of Run DMC, Public Enemy, Eric B, Roxanne Chance and LL Cool J. What are your memories of that time then? Just how befuddled they were for these things. <laughs> used to be with like Bella Hewitt and Shauna Haig and Stuart Clark. What were these white dudes doing all the way over? <laughs> well, we couldn't get, can't get arrested in America. We can't get a review in the local college rag sort of thing. And it was like, that was really sweet of Chuck D. And he said, I always had time for the enemy because in those early days, you came over and wrote articles about us. And uh, he said we couldn't get arrested in our own country. But those journalists and the people at the enemy saw that this was an important style of music that was going to be around for a long time. And that, that became a big battle in the enemy between the old sort of velvety student bedroom rockers and, and the kids writing about. But it did become a bit of a thing about black music and, and white music. Well, there's anything wrong with the velvets and all that. I think good music is good music, as they say. I don't think they ever split it down the line between those those genres and things like that. And it was good music. Presumably they appreciated the fact that you liked the music and you dug it and all that. And, yeah. and your background loving punk and all that kind of yeah, stuff as well. exactly. It was, it was all really good. But they did. They were scratching their heads because of that thing. America pretends to be this great melting pot. I know we have our problems here as well and stuff, but it did. I went to school with West Indian kids and went to blueses and that, and I went and saw Isaacs and Brant Levi and, and uh, Prince Farai and stuff. I went and saw that bands back then and didn't think anything of it. They were sort of, I don't get this, but obviously as it changes, stuff, you get Aerosmith with Run DMC and suddenly that, yeah. The two worlds collide. The Red, the Red Sea opens and stuff, and oh, yeah, yeah, we can like it, but you do get that. It always irks me, that thing, that vanilla ice of black music that happens over the year and stuff, and that those fucking, we can buy if it's sung by a white person sort of thing and that'll always hurt me about black music it's always been copied and yeah from everything that begins the blues and everything it begins with I know it's a form of flattery as well and it's how you mm. do it afterwards as long as you bring something else to the party as well and great it was amazing seeing that Super Bowl recently wasn't it with with those performers was it this year or last year I'm trying to remember that with, yeah. with Snoop Dogg and all that and suddenly yeah. this mu- this music's now mainstream it's yeah. mainstream America which you wouldn't have yeah. thought would be possible and they to eat their words those boys in the enemy and yeah, it's a flash in the pan this will, and this will be gone by Christmas sort of thing and so no no we saw this this is another genre of music that's going to become big in its own right we're away with some styles of it and stuff and maybe I romantically look back at those sort of yeah, the public enemy days and the De La Soul days and things like that where I thought they were being a bit cleverer and stuff but yeah, that's me that's probably me being 
an awful lot. I'm sure those bands are there. <laughs> I just don't know about them anymore. But it's remarkable when you see them headlining Glastonbury, like Kendrick Lamar headlining Glastonbury, Jay-Z, you know, headlining Glastonbury. Yeah. It's, it's, it's remarkable, it really is. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Um, I should ask you, so when did you last photograph Paul? I mean, obviously you meet up a lot, I'm sure, and you, you can make, yeah, but when did you back. actually last take the photo? Probably a while back. It might have been the, the modern classics, the reissue of modern classics. Yeah, not the reissue, the, the second copy, the ones we did down by the Crimea, down by Piccadilly. We did an opposite thing where we'd done the um, modern classics out in the in the countryside, in that lovely winding field in the hayfield. And then um, he said, well, we'll take that to the city then. So I just went around trying to find locations in central London that we could shoot for that. So, yeah, I don't think I've done too many. Might have been a couple of odd live pictures here and there and stuff. Yeah, I was doing old bits and pieces. But, yeah, I'm sure hopefully, I'll, yeah, there'll be an occasion where I can bring a camera along again. But we'll see anyway. It was lovely to see that red jacket at the exhibition in Brighton. Which one was that? I didn't, I didn't so the one off the modern classics. It, it was meant to be the Lennon sort, yeah. Yeah, this beautiful embroidered, yeah, embroidered red, red one. jacket. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there's, there's meant to be some Lennon history with that. You'd have to probably check with Paul about that. I don't know if it's a similar tailor or something, but there's some there's some Lennon connection in that jacket. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah, I, I read, or no, Nicky told me, I think, that Paul really wanted it in the exhibition, really wanted it yeah. to be in, in John Weller's room at the exhibition, which was, yeah. which was a lovely oh, touch. It's like, yeah, nice to see that. It's a great shot as well. Yeah, no, I wish I'd got down. I was meant to come down and see that as well. Nicky said, take some bits down there. But I was thinking, oh no, but it's Jam and Star Council and stuff. So I'm sure there'll be one down the da- one down the years. We'll do another nice solo. <laughs> well, we're trying to persuade. Yeah, I said to Nick, it has to be a solo exhibition. Um, but the other connection with Paul, obviously, you go down to Black Barn and and meet up with Paul. I'm, I'm imagining and the other connection that I saw was Declan O'Rourke. So Paul produced his most recent album, yeah. and you did you did the shots for the cover for the inlay and everything. Yeah, yeah. No, was, I think Paul said, like, Declan, I think you need some decent pictures for it. Stuff. Let's hook you up with Lawrence. And I'd met Declan before. Yeah, he'd, um, I took some live pictures. And when I did a little show in a, in a, in a pub in, in somebody had got me to take some bits over to Ireland. So one of his like five nighters in Dublin. And, um, yeah, Declan was supporting there. So I took some pictures and met Declan back, back in the day then. And he was a lovely guy through his, his management and stuff. We hooked up and he came over and we did some sessions in London for him and ended up doing his covers. Yeah, he's a great songwriter as well, Declan. So. Yeah, he's such a talent. He's such a lovely guy. He was lovely on the podcast yeah. as well. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier on about, or I mentioned earlier on about like Paul saying like when you're on tour with them, you you'll feel like you're part of the band. You're kind of embedded with the crew. Yeah. Presumably you've been all over the world with them. You've been down under, you've been to Japan, America. Where have you been? Japan. We haven't been to, I didn't do Australia, but Japan, most of Europe, America. Yeah. New York are taking pictures of Paul. Yeah. Most of Europe. Yeah. France, Holland, Germany, Italy. Yeah. No, I hope. Yeah. Yeah. Apart from, yeah. Australia. I think, yeah. Most of the world have taken pictures. Yeah. Now, obviously, what happens on tour stays on tour. That's that's like an unwritten rule, yeah. right? That's absolutely yeah. fine. But, yeah. but how messy did it get back in the day? I mean, I gather it's calmed down a bit. Paul stopped drinking the last 10, yeah. 13, 15 years, something like that. But yeah. how messy did it get back in the day? It got messy. <laughs> It got messy, <laughs> but um, yeah, I don't know. I got plead the fifth here, didn't I? <laughs> <laughs> and who was in charge of, of just sorting it all out? Who was in charge? Was it Kenny making sure that you went to bed on time and nothing went too far and all that? It was Kenny probably trying to, yeah. But I think there was there was too many people to herd there. Though I think yeah, as you got one into there, there was another one sneaking out the back there and stuff. So yeah, and no, it was it was it was kids let loose in the in the sweet shop there. I think yeah, and there was a hell of a lot of sweets to, to consume. So yeah. <laughs> it must have been really interesting to be there that, from that beginning and seeing the kind of the rebirth of Paul as a solo artist from the two bands before from the Jam the Style Council and having to go at it again having another run at it and having to kind of rebuild this audience up again yeah no, it was, it was strange stuff because, yeah, some people would say, oh, in, in the wilderness there, would especially have your, your record label that you've made a fortune for as well, Polydor and something, say, no, we're, we're, we're parking here, we don't see, they, they see this as the end of the road. Anybody with half, half a bit of nouse would say, no, he's a great songwriter, that, that's not going to go away. There'll be different styles and 
trains going on or whatever and stuff. But it's like, no, no, they didn't see it. Like, probably, you know, was it Columbia dropping Johnny Cash or something like that and stuff? And record labels like, no, these buildings they're built on the money these these musicians have made for you. And so no, and I had every every confidence in there that Paul was there. There'll be more songs coming along. And yeah, I was fortunate to yeah, be able to get get in there and document at the time. And I love Paul Ethos back then as well because sometimes it'd be, there'd be there'd be moments back then where we were just going out and starting to, to tour and but and he didn't need to say, say oh, I don't care if, if I have to just go around playing in the pubs and stuff as long as I'm playing I don't care and as long as that ethos was in the back of Paul's mind I'm not going to have to satisfy the beast of the record industry me just playing gives me satisfaction and stuff that's like there's no way they're going to keep this man down and you're not going to stop him for what he wants to do and then as people are caught up with the, the styles of music Paul has played there's all these lovely sweet things I've been seeing people saying about confessions of a pop group that didn't get a lot of acknowledgement at the time you know people writing these lovely sweet things this is a really good album that I didn't quite get and that's it most musicians are out of time they're doing something ahead of their time and they don't get it I think Picasso and I know who I pinched that from but a good artist is always out of time he's, ne- he's never satisfying the trends and things like that he's just honouring his, his own artistic moments that are passing through his brain at the time and turning them into whatever whatever kind of art and what is it about an artist like Paul and some of the others that you work with where they do want to continually push forward into the unknown to try what is, what is that in them that makes them want to create new things I think it's, it's the great satisfaction that's the buzz that's the, that's the adrenaline thing that you get from creating something there's nothing nothing greater than, than making something whatever shape or form it may it's a buzz it's a drug so, and I think, yeah, no, if you can tap into that, and I think, oh, luckily, most of the musicians I worked with know that drug very well and the quality of their work. There's nothing greater than going out onto that stage and as a musician, anyway, to perform those songs that you've written and have come out of your brain, your bumps. There must be a bit of you that side of the stage taking these photos or in the pit as part of the entourage where. It feels a bit rock star, doesn't it? Your side of the stage looking out on these massive audiences going yeah. mad. Yeah, no, I think I pinched myself a lot in these early days, but then I just remember, so I'm here, here to do a job as well and stuff. And I would be, I'd often be dancing in the pit or dancing inside the stage and say, hang on a minute, come on, you've got your pictures to as well. But <laughs> there's moments, there's a song that you like a little um, dance to as well. But that was the great thing that was so satisfying. I've got the, the greatest job in the world here. I'm being paid to go along and listen to brilliant music and document something. It's like, wow. Thank God I can take decent photos. Yeah. <laughs> I've not been found out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I'm still getting away with it, as they say. What are you up to at the moment? What's the latest gig? Um, just bits of documentary and stuff. And they helped out a little young musician, the Spitfires. He'd given me a call a little while back and Billy. Oh, Billy, Billy Sullivan. Sullivan. Yeah, he was very sweet. Wanted some pictures doing. I think he's between record labels and going solo. So I did some little bits and pieces for him recently. So that was, that was, that was good fun. I've just been doing documentaries. I think people keep pestering me about doing other books and things as well and stuff. So I have been going through and that happened with the COVID thing because there wasn't any work, obviously. So I have been trying to archive things and bring things down from lofts and stuff. So I don't realise how much bleeding stuff I've shot over the years. <laughs> <laughs> are you very good at the archiving or are you like, it's just all over the shop, right? Terrible. Yeah, terrible. Yeah, It's like you've done it put it in a box it, it, it's catalogue but not not yeah my alphabetical order and as I've moved studios over the years as well we're filing cabinets and done exhibitions things will be taken out here and there and stuff like, why didn't I put these back properly when books come along they do actually the, the genesis things make me actually have to get everything out and try and make some sense of it and put it in order they're the little projects I'm doing at the moment so okay well any you can tell us about the all top secret at the minute um yeah there's <laughs> some I can't say about but yeah, yeah I think the covid thing did knock it all for six and stuff and I wanted to go along and take pictures of lots of gigs and shows and stuff and with the bubble thing and all that thing it did it did um yeah take 
and you, you just couldn't go along and shoot most of the bands and things like that. So, and everybody had to be so cautious when they're recording. It was just them and engineer, and, and that's it. Did knock it all for six. So, hopefully, it's slowly getting back on its feet again. You can be around people. Yeah. But yeah, it was very damaging that period. Now, look, Lawrence, it's been so lovely having you on the podcast. Um, I can hear the dog needs a walk. So, uh, <laughs> I've got two final questions for you before you go, okay? You're allowed one Paul Weller song for the rest of your life. It can be the Jam, the Star Council, or Solo. What are you going to go with? Oh, that's tricky. I'll probably go back to my teenage one that I just love and stuff. I always said I'd probably get that at my funerals. I'd probably go with English Rose. It's just got a very nostalgic thing to me, I think, yeah. And Wildwood has a very sort of, yeah, emotional thing to me as well. Yeah, it's your song, yeah. The thing I, this is only, and this only struck me from getting back into the vinyl again um, recently, because I got rid of all my vinyl. I upgraded to CD. Um, I then moved to MP3 because that was the future. Um, and getting back into vinyl again and reminder that all mod cons, English Rose is like a hidden track. It's not named on the vinyl album, right? So that would have been as a young kid listening to you like hold on what's this where's this come yeah. from yeah that's the one i would re- i would have studied that's that, that sleeve religiously so that's why i'm going out the memory sort of thing for that one and stuff but yeah and there's tons of those songs from that period that's entertainment and yeah town called malice and stuff and there's tons of solo stuff that i love as well it's, it's a, a tricky thing on another day i'd probably pick another song anyway maybe i'm a bit maudlin at the moment <laughs> <laughs> well we'll let you have that one and then the final question purpose of this podcast is to meet lovely people like yourself who have had such an impact in weller's world and to us as fans and we thank you for that but really it's to get the interview with paul weller that i never managed during my radio career if it happens, what should I ask him? Oh, that question. <laughs> I know. It's got to be music and clothes. Yeah, it's got to be music and clothes. Yeah. Clothes, clothes, probably. Yeah, I sit very, very closely to the music thing. Presumably there's artists that he's introduced you to and vice versa. You, you yeah. kind of have those conversations, yeah. right? Oh, definitely, yeah. No, some of the jazz things that he's yeah, introduced me to. I've forgotten the Coltrane one that, like, my youngest son, yeah, got into more than me. He was a saxophone player, Miles. So he appreciated that one more than me. But yeah, no, he's always, yeah, he's always amazing me with the, with the records. He's always, he's always listening to new music all the time. Oh, it's amazing how many artists he's introduced me to from people like Villagers to Declan, we talked about Lucy Rose to uh, Black Pumas, another one. Great, great music that's around. He's just digging it, and which is not bad for a guy in his sixties to be digging new music like that, right? Yeah, yeah. No, he's a lot. Yeah, no, he keeps he keeps listening to stuff. He's uh, yeah, and it always amazes me the breadth of the music that he keeps. Uh, he keeps wanting to to hear that new music, but that's it. That's a, that's another another form of, of inspiration. It's, and as youngsters, yeah, should do they inspire as the older generations inspire the youngsters, the youngsters can inspire the older generations. Well, there's always something to learn from each other. You mentioned Black Barn earlier on, actually. I should ask you that about that because you mentioned you know you've obviously been to the manor wildwood black barn studios in more recent years and stuff what works about these studios these have some kind of magic these studios don't they i don't know if i'm putting to words what the magic is i suppose uh, being comfortable in them i think yeah find the space that you're comfortable to create in and i think with lots of those ones being sort of residential ones as well and you're down there and that's it you're there to make music if you find those studios in London where you're just turning up and going back to the day-to-day and stuff, I think you can shut yourself away and you're just in that world of creating music and that's what you're there for. So I think that probably helps. And no- normally lovely countryside locations, so it's always good to be out of the sea. Yeah, I guess that element where you can switch off and switch you know, from, from yeah. life and, and be creative and exactly. think about other things. Yeah. Hey, Lawrence, this, this has been so lovely. Thank you so much for joining me. I've loved every second of this. I look forward to whatever's coming next. And I have to say again, thank you so much for so many of these such iconic images that us fans absolutely love man they're brilliant thank you pleasure well what an absolute blast there you go another legend on the podcast lawrence watson and his dog 
And you see, he couldn't avoid me forever. We got him eventually. A really enjoyable experience all around. Lovely to hear his memories. Thanks so much again, Lawrence. Do check out the show notes for this podcast on my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. I've put loads of details on there, lots of imagery that you can link through to, to Lawrence's website as well, and the videos that we talked about, and more and more and more that we could squeeze into our chat. So just head to the website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And whilst you're there, don't forget, you can show your support for the podcast by heading into our store as well. We have exclusive merchandise, our first official podcast mug, and you can also buy a virtual coffee there as well. On the roll call this week, Travis Blake, hello to you. Jeremy from Sydney, hello friend. Jordan Cartmel says, just finished listening to the Jezar episode. Hearing stories from behind the scenes is why this is the best music podcast around. Oh, thank you, Jordan. That's really lovely to hear. John Reed, it's great to be able to buy you a coffee. Please keep the constant Weller guests and the unheard stories coming. Thumbs up emoji. Cheers, John. Much appreciated. Lisa Kaufman, hello to you. Martin Bonholm, Dan, your podcasts are an absolute delight, highlighting how lucky we are as music fans to have Paul in our lives. Mike C., hello to you. Richard Jones Nerzik, Simon Carslidge, Martin Glover. Thank you to all of you for getting in touch and for your virtual coffees as well. If you want to get involved, just head to my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. And if you grab a virtual coffee, I'll give you a shout out on the show next week. On the next episode of the podcast, by the way, an incredible The Style Council honorary counsellor with a career CV that you will not believe. We're talking Madonna, The Rolling Stones, Kylie, Robbie Williams, The Blow Monkeys, R.E.M., Monks Rose Social, David Gray, and so much more. Steve Sidelnik on the next episode of Desperately Seeking Paul. Make sure you follow, you subscribe wherever you get your podcast, whether that's Apple, Spotify, Amazon, or anywhere else. You can find me on social media as well. Get in touch on Twitter. I feel like that's a dirty word right now, but we're still there at the moment. It's at WellerFanPod or on Instagram and Facebook. Just search for the Paul Weller Fan Podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch Sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.